Therefore, though I thought, if I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. And I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart. On Sunday, I preached about runaways. And uh, I thank God for what he did this past Sunday, Sunday on the runaway. Tonight, I want to teach on recovering runaway. So please be seated and let's look into the word of God. My message Sunday focused on this runaway slave, Onesimus. And tonight I want to talk about his story, but some other stories in Scripture, the people who were away from God, and maybe some keys, some insights that will help us be better at recovering spiritual runaways and leading them back to the Lord. We don't really know from the Scripture what motivated Onesimus to run away from the house of Philemon. There are several million slaves in the Roman Empire in the times of Jesus Christ, the days of the early church. So I'm sure running away was, was common. I don't know how many of them were successful in staying away and starting a new life and how many were captured and returned back to their owners. Uh, we don't know what motivated him, but was he running from freedom? Was he running away with money that he had stolen from Philemon? I mentioned that on Sunday. We do know that he owed Philemon money, or it appears he did. And then, was he running away because he was feeling spiritual conviction for his sins? I'd not really thought about this very much, but when you read through the book of Philemon, which I took the time, so much time today to read it again, 25 verses. Such a long book in the Bible. You don't really feel, you don't see Paul writing about Philemon as a bad boss, a bad master. He's a good man, and we'll talk about that just a little bit. But there's some insights here that I hope will be helpful in, re, in recovering runaway people. In, in Philemon, and I'm going to just read through New Living Translation. Not all of these verses are on the screen. But Paul tells Philemon, I, I always thank my God when I pray for you, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. Now, Paul's being really wise here. He's complimenting Philemon. He's getting ready to ask him, ask him to do something. But before he asks him to do something, he's being real positive and he's pointing out what a really good person Philemon is. He said, I'm praying for you that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith is... You understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Hint, hint. You know, that's kind of what I see when I read that. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God people. And then verse 8. That is why I'm boldly asking a favor. Paul said, I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, our relationship, I prefer simply to just ask you, consider this request from me, Paul, an old man and also a prisoner for Christ Jesus' sake. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. 
Onesimus hasn't been much use to you in the past, and, but now he's useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, and he comes with my own heart. I wanted him to keep him here while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news, and he could have helped me on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so you could have him back forever. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? He's no longer like a slave to you. He's more than a slave. He is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. And then in the New Living Translation, it's in all caps. Like Paul, he always, often, not always, but often dictated letters. Someone else would write it and he would speak. But now it's like Paul grabs the parchment and grabs the quill and he uses his own hand to write this. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And then he throws in, like Paul sometimes did, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Feel a little leverage here? Paul is leveraging Philemon in this letter. And then he says, yes, my brother, do this, do me this favor for the Lord's sake and give me this encouragement in Christ. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. I'm sure, Philemon, when you get this letter, you're going to take Onesimus back. You're going to forgive him for the sins he committed against you. You're going to forgive him for running away. However you treated him when he left, you're going to treat him better when he returns. He's not just going to be a servant in your household He's going to be a brother in Christ. And I don't want you to punish him for what he did. I don't want you to charge him for the debt. Just charge me, you know. Of course, he says, you owe me everything, your whole soul. Don't treat him as a lower class citizen, a slave, but treat him like a brother. I want to pause there. I'll probably say this a little later. But when a person comes back to the Lord, a runaway, the last thing they need is to be treated like a runaway. The last thing they need is to be treated like a lower class citizen because they've come back home to the family of God. And if you were here on Sunday or watched online, you know the ground at the cross is level. There's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. We're all one in Christ, Jesus Christ. Our value to Him is the same regardless of our status in life, our relationship or our position. So Paul wants Philemon to see this entire situation through the eyes of God. You know, somewhat philosophical. I want you to think about this, Philemon. You lost him and you were angry about that. And maybe you dispatched the Roman officials to capture him. However, it ended up that he met Paul. We don't know for sure that he was captured. It seems to me he was. But I want you to see this through the eyes of God. That, you know, all these bad things that happened to you, you lost your servant. And all these things that happened to Onesimus, but ultimately it worked out that Onesimus through all of these things was saved. And that, Philemon, is the most important 
thing in the world. It's not why they left or how they left or what happened to them while they were gone. It's that they came home. That they were run away, but now they've been recovered. And that is the mission of the church. And then just more for fun than anything, Paul's very next words, he changes the subject. He says one more thing, New Living Translation. Please prepare a guest room for me. For I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Now Paul's a prisoner in Rome. I don't think that he ever got to go back to see Philemon at Colossae. But he just says, you know, get my room ready. And I hope that I'm able to come see you. Just a little personal note. And uh, I thought about Paul. Again, this is a little parenthesis in my message. He had, he had dreams of going to Spain. He had dreams of doing other things. Some of the plans that Paul had for ministry, the dreams of things he wanted to do for God never came to pass. But he was able to say, I fought a good fight. fight fought a good fight, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith. So even though I didn't get to do everything I wanted to do, I did the things that mattered. And when we come to the end of our life's journey, we'll never get to do everything we wanted to do. But let's make sure we do the things that matter most. Paul says, get my room ready. I hope I'll get to come back and see you. Now, I'm going to give you several runaways and uh, we'll take just kind of snapshots of them. You can't really do a biographical sermon on each of them tonight. But Onesimus the slave, Jonah the runaway preacher, Gomer the runaway preacher's wife, the prodigal son, Simon Peter, John Mark. And I just want to show you a few insights, facets of these stories from them. And I won't necessarily use every one of them for every insight. Now before I get into their stories... I want to say when it comes to your children, people that are part of our church family, your literal children, there's some things that we can do to try to prevent running away. I did some reading uh, about runaways in the United States and I had some of those things in my notes and I moved most of them out just kind of for my own information. But most of the runaways in the Bible ran to something rather than from something. They were running to temptation. Maybe some of them, you know, if you look at Hagar who ran from Sarah, Jacob who ran from Esau, those people that ran in relationships, but people who ran to sin were not running necessarily away from a bad church or a bad pastor, but they were running away to something. It was the fault that was in them, not the person they were running away from. And even Philemon, I pointed that out earlier, that Paul is very complimentary of Philemon. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't paint him as a bad person that forced Onesimus to make those bad decisions. But there's some things I think that people can do, and this is just kind of a little practical advice. I think I could back all of this up with Scripture, but I don't want to drill down too deep. The first thing you can do is be genuine. Be real. Be a, a real Christian. Not one thing at church and something else at home. Hopefully, I mean, I think, you know, Christian at church, devil at home, not devil at church and Christian at home. Be the same godly person wherever you are. It is very confusing for anyone, especially children, to see you be an angel at church and a devil at home. 
And I know people, I could name names, that grew up in Christian homes and their parents were not the same at home as they were at church. That means you need to repent when you sin and apologize when you're wrong. Don't let your ego get in the way of cultivating healthy relationships. Stay connected to the church and keep your family connected. You're here on a Wednesday night. Most of you worked a long day. Most of you will get up early in the morning. Your children are here. I have a testimony, no matter how much it warped me, that you can go to church on Wednesday night, stay up a little later, and survive it. We did somehow, four of us, and we we're all functioning adults. So it is possible to do that, and many of you have that same testimony that you grew up in church. And we try to be respectful of that uh, as much as possible. So be, the, be real. And then be faithful. Leaders who fall crush the hearts of people who follow them. No leader is perfect. Every one of us have faults. I'm talking about living for God over the long haul. The children and other people that you lead may not always agree with your decisions, but if you're consistent in what you do, if you strive to do the right thing, most people will respect you as a parent, as a leader, as a boss, even when they disagree with the decision you made, if they see that you're trying to be consistent and if you're a faithful person, they can live with human imperfections. And I'm not talking about with immorality or sin. And then I think in homes and churches, the balance of love and discipline is important. That love should be unconditional and that proper discipline is an act of love. But harshness and irrational correction is not conducive to healthy relationships. And in the history of this local church, there are people who grew up in unhealthy homes that were connected to the church, but they were not faithful to church. Church was in the periphery of their life, not in the middle of their life. It's no accident that when the children of Israel traveled in the wilderness, that the tabernacle was in dead center. It was in the middle, and they camped around it. God and the church, the Old Testament church, was in the center of their lives. Not at the circumference, not whenever they could work it in, not every third or fourth Sunday. It was their life. And it makes a difference. Amen. I read, I told you, I, a couple of these things I actually put back in my notes. 47% of teen runaways reported they were having a conflict with a parent or a guardian. Approximately 50% of teens reported that their parents kicked them out of the house and didn't care if they left. 80% of young people, and all these statistics could vary, they all come from the same source, said that they were sexually or physically abused before they ran away. So sometimes people run away from hurt, from pain, from really bad situations. Me, the story I told at the age of five or six or seven, I don't remember, I have no idea. I think my feelings got hurt and it was popular to run away, you know, but whatever. In your home and in a church, you should focus on relationships more than rules. I believe in standards and rules and regulations and curfews and things like that, practical things in a home, but the focus should be on the relationship. Remember the prodigal son, even though there was a relationship, he was focused on the rules. That's not something you can control. He saw the restrictions restrictions of a godly home and the bright lights of a far country caught his attention. 
But if you focus more on relationships, you know, kids hear a lot of no. And the Bible's got a lot of no's in it, by the way. The church has no's and not just standards, but do's and don'ts, principles that are in the Bible, things we do, things we don't do. But the do's and don'ts are protective. They are guardrails. They're to keep us away from danger and to keep us in a right relationship with God. So I want to encourage you to make sure you focus on the relationship more than the rules. And by the way, not part of my notes, but don't ever beat up your kids or use the church. Man up, woman up, be the parent. Don't blame the church for this or that. You take responsibility in your home. We'll, I'll back you up, you back me up, and together that's a good partnership. And it is worse for you to choose to have some divergent view and let your children grow up knowing that you didn't, you had a spirit, an attitude that you are not going to go along and not comply and not submit to biblical authority. I'm not talking about a random rule made by a human being. I'm talking about the Bible and that your children see it's like a mom and dad who disagree. The children are the ones who suffer the most. Parents need to be on the same page. You need to get on the same page if you're not and not let your children see that you're not on the same page. It is unhealthy. And that is true in a home. It is true in the church. Okay. And then realistic expectations. I thank God, you know, four of us in our family and all of us have just been motivated in life. But my parents didn't make us fear that if we didn't make a perfect, you know, straight A's on a report card, that we were going to be beaten when we got home. Or if there was a failure, that we did something wrong, that we were going to lose our life for it. Or, you know, I'm being exaggerating a little bit. And, and sometimes we make fun of participation trophies, you know. You get a trophy just for breathing and being there and not really for achievement. I'm not necessarily for that. But I do believe that loving unconditionally, believing in people, saying it often, has a powerful effect to motivate them to do their best and be their best. You cannot continually raising the bar to set impossible standards that a person thinks they can never reach and raise healthy children and have a healthy church. We all need a lot of encouragement. You will not overdose on encouragement. You might brag on a person's appearance or performance, and that can be unhealthy, but encouragement and love, you cannot get too much of it. You cannot give too much of it. Amen. Amen. Jesus heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Amen. Cultivate a culture of mercy and forgiveness. This is all, in these stories, you'll see some of this. Let your kids know that they don't have to run away to start over. They can start over right here. If you mess up, fess up, make it right. If you sin, come to church. Come to the altar. We'll love you. We'll help you get through it. If there's disciplinary action that needs to be taken as far as ministry goes, we'll deal with all of that in a quiet, private way. But don't let failure cause you to run from God or from the body of Christ. There should be in your home and in the church a climate, a culture of love and forgiveness. Amen? Of mercy. And by the way, blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall obtain mercy. And if you will give mercy, you'll get mercy. For however you mete it out, it will be measured again to you. Running away and even worse. We've seen people do harm to their lives, result to all kinds of sinful behavior, even taking their lives. And sometimes it's the feeling of failure that they can never measure up. And I know it can be much more complicated than that and, and mental illness and depression and other things that take into account that can be spiritual, emotional, physiological, and that can be a complex subject. We can do what we are able to do. We should do what we're able to do to create a healthy climate in our homes, in our church, and if you're a business owner or a supervisor on your job that is biblically based, that gives people room to grow, that's corrective, and you know the Bible said it's a skinny gate, it's a narrow way that leads to life, and you've got to find that. So there's nothing wrong with having a, a narrow way to live. Amen? But it can be a, love, a life of love and mercy that you don't drive people away. Ultimately, in these stories though, you cannot always stop them. You can lay in front of the car, let them run you over on their way as they run away. You cannot always stop them. So here's these people, Gomer, preacher's wife. Her husband is a prophet, Hosea. You don't find a mark on him. But she says, Hosea 2 and 5, for their mother hath played the harlot. She hath conceived them, hath done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. She's deceived by the lure of false love. She thinks that if she leaves Hosea, that things will be better there. The pleasures of sin for a season. The allurement of gratification now. Running from responsibility. Running to what seems to be a carefree life, which is really a life of bondage. And I'll say this in code, but on the runaways, I, I, I again, just before church, I... I put a couple things back in my notes. 70% of young girls, girls who run away, get involved in, in abuse, and you understand what type of abuse I'm saying. 10% of young people in shelters say that they get involved in, in behavior that is a survival behavior just to try to get food or shelter or drugs or something else to try to survive. This is somewhat in, in Gomer's mind. She's going to go sacrifice her morals. She's going to violate her marital relationship to try to survive. It's a terrible decision. But Gomer makes that decision. In Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, he has the perfect father. I think this story is typical of God. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. But it's not his dad that's the problem. Yeah, his brother probably got on his nerves, his older brother, you know. But... The Bible doesn't indicate any of those things affected his decision to leave. He just said, Dad, I want the portion that belongs to me. I'm out of here. And the Bible said that after several days, he gathered all his stuff up and he went, took his journey into a far country. And when he got there, he wasted his substance in riotous living. He spent everything he had. 
the Apostle Peter, who was somewhat of a spiritual runaway, you know, denied Jesus Christ three times at that fire of coals and Pilate's judgment. I could see the trial of Jesus going on from where he was sitting. It was no, nothing in Jesus that drove him away. It was Simon Peter, the weakness that was in him. He said he would pay the price, but when it came right down to it, he did it. Where does a runaway go? Well, they may go a lot of places. They may go into a far country. They may run 1,200 miles like Onesimus. But eventually, true runaways from God always hit bottom. If we enable them, we may prolong the crash. And there is a balance. I don't, I don't have that formula of how much do you help that runaway survive versus allowing as the father did. He did not chase his runaway son. He let him come to a place. I don't know that he had knowledge of that. You know, in the Bible you can't see that. If you enable them, they probably just keep running. So we don't punish, but we don't always interfere with reasonable consequences. The wages of sin, the way of the transgressor is hard. There's a price to pay. There's, there's this coming to the bottom. In, in the case of Gomer, Hosea 2.6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way in thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. Now, you could say she didn't hit bottom, she hit the wall. God is involved in trying to turn this runaway around. So it's thorns. I preached about this Sunday some. It's thorns. It's a wall she runs into. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then, everybody please say then. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. Gomer hits the wall. Gomer hits bottom. And it is only then that she realizes, wait a second, I thought I was running to pleasure, to provision. I was running from it. And when she ran into the thorns that God allowed to be there, when she hit the wall, it was then. Everybody needs to lock that then in your mind because that then is very, very powerful. Amen. Gomer ends up being a slave. And she is going to be sold for 15 pieces of silver and some grain, barley, and Gomer and a half of barley. Now Jonah, he doesn't hit the wall, he hits the whale. The great fish that God prepared. Now I love this story. And Jonah's a pretty short book. You can read it before you go to bed and feel good about your Bible reading. Jonah, you know, God says, go preach to Nineveh. He's not going to go. He gets a ship going to Tarshish. The Lord sends a storm. And I thought it was pretty awesome, you know, that the, the shipmen, even though Jonah says, throw me overboard, they, they start rowing. There's some compassion in these pagans 
that they don't want to throw Jonah overboard. They're going to try to make it work. They're going to row their way to shore. And finally, it doesn't work. So they take Jonah up, throw him in the ocean, and the sea is calm. And they're totally afraid now. This has made them fear more than the storm because it instantly went quiet. Made vows to God. I mean, they, they prayed through sort of back there. And then this great fish swallows up Jonah. He's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, not in his mouth, in his belly. And he prays. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. This, this section of my notes is called hit bottom. This is a bad place to be. When you read Jonah with the seaweed wrapped around his neck, it's the creel or the fish or whatever, the great fish, whatever it was. New Testament calls it a whale. Whatever that fish was eating, Jonah got to watch it digest, I guess. I don't know. He didn't have a flashlight. But the Bible says, this is Jonah 2.2. And I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell cried I, and you heard my voice. But Jonah hit bottom, the prodigal son. I mentioned this story, but Luke 15, 14, he began to be in want. He joined himself to a citizen of the country and did what a Jewish boy would never do. He got a job feeding pigs. And he wished somebody would give him hog food, the slop or whatever, but nobody would even give him that. He was starving to death. And when it was there, the Bible said... And when he came to himself. I know you know that story. Many of you do. Most of you do. When he hit bottom, it was that point in his life that he was thinking he's going to die that he comes to himself. If he never gets that hungry, he's never going to turn around. But then he says, I will arise and go to my father. And he rehearses what he's going to say. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. It better be better to be a slave in my father's house than to be out here dying in the pig pen. So in the middle of all of this, God is working behind the scenes. Amen? And he may work through dreams, experiences, reminders from him. I had a recovered runaway that's part of our church family tell me not too long ago that while they were out in sin, in deep sin, that more than once, I think twice, maybe three times, the Lord spoke to this person in an audible voice. A sinner away from God. But God was reaching for that runaway. And in an audible voice, God basically said, if you do that, you're going to die. There's this God factor. And that's where we come in. If you read the article I wrote about invest, intercede, and invite, the same three things we've talked about for over 20 years here when we talk about reaching people. But the power of prayer and fasting. If you don't have Brother Herring's book, one of the reasons we fast is for lost people, for people that we believe God needs to do something to save. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. 
And when you're converted, not if, he has faith. He sees this. And when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. You may fail, but faith is that belief that God will forgive you, that you can come back to God. So Simon Peter failed miserably, cursed, swore with an oath, denied he knew the Lord. But somehow in faith, I think the difference between Simon Peter and Judas is that Judas turned to suicide, Peter turned to repentance. And it's what you turn to when you have failed that makes a difference. And prayer can make a difference in turning a person back to God. Well, God is at work when they hit bottom. The Lord loves runaways more than we love runaways. Amen? Gomer's going to hit the wall. Jonah's going to hit the whale. The prodigal is going to hit the bottom in the pig pen. The rooster's going to crow and wake Peter up from his being so messed up. This is a verse I've mentioned before, usually in passing, Jeremiah 2.19. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. In other words, the Lord is saying to Israel, to Judah, you are walking away from me. But you're like Gomer, you're walking right into a thorn bush. You're walking right into a wall. You're walking right into a pig pen. You're walking right into the belly of a whale. You're walking right into more trouble than you ever dreamed of. And when you get there, the life and sin and the, the, the punishment, the consequences of your behavior, it's going to be beating you back to God. It's going to, to whoop up on you pretty good, as we would say in the South. I had another story in my notes. I took it out, moved it to the end. I didn't feel like I had time to adequately address it. But it's the story of the, uh, the uh, incestuous man in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2. Two parts of the same story. But Paul says, this man that is living in immorality in the church, and you're proud of it, put him out of the church. The devil's going to beat up on him. And when he, this, he doesn't say it like this, but when he hits bottom, then he'll turn back to the Lord. And the Corinthians did such a good job at putting him out and not associating with him at all, that when he tried to get back in the church, they were sticking to their guns. They wouldn't forgive him. So that's later in the message, you know. So when they come to their senses, they can start their journey back. So and then here's the next thing. We need to forgive the runaway. Amen. Hosea 2.14. This is what the Lord says. And when you read this story for the first few chapters, it's not really just an allegory. It's a real person, Gomer. But she is typical. She's like Israel. Israel has done this to God. Like Hosea has, uh, Gomer has done this to Hosea. So here's how the Lord, this is what he says about Gomer. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. So she's out here running into thorn hedges, running into walls. And the Lord said, I'm over here saying, hey, come back. I've got, a, I've got a word for her and it's not condemnation. Life is beating her up. Her own mistakes are chastening her like Jeremiah said. The Lord said, I'm going to speak comfortably unto her and will give her vineyards from there. And the valley of Achor, Achor means trouble. And the valley of Achor for a door of hope. In the middle of her trouble, 
I'm going to let her know, hey, there's a doorway that you can get out of this mess. There's a way to come back to God. You're not stuck there forever. See, people who are away from God feel like the Lord won't forgive them, feel like the church won't take them back, feel like they can't live for God again, that they're too far gone. But the Lord says, I'm going to give her a door of hope. I'm going to open that door and say, come home. Kind of recover them. Praise God. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And then Hosea 3, not on the screens, but Hosea goes. Can you imagine? This is his wife. She was immoral when he, when he first married her. She goes back to her evil life. The Lord says, go get her back again. And the Lord says, go yet love a woman, be loved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord, Toward the children of Israel who looked to other gods and loved flagons of wine. And the Lord said, Hosea, I want you to demonstrate to your estranged wife the love that I have for my people. Because I love my people even when they're in sin, even when they're idolatrous. On their worst day, Hosea, I want you to show Israel how much I love them by showing Gomer how much you love her. Gomer said, So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver for an omer of barley and a half omer of barley. And I said unto her, You shall abide with me many days. Look at the forgiveness. And thou shalt not play the harlot and thou shalt not be for another man and, will I, and, and so will I also be for thee. The prodigal son, Luke 15 and 20, and he arose and came to his father. But here's the father, here's the church, okay? But when he was yet a great way off, not when he got home and repented, when he's a great way off, but he's coming. As long as he was going the other way, as long as he's running from God, and I know this is not a perfect science, this is a single story, you don't over-apply a parable or a story, you know, but father didn't chase him down. The shepherd went after the sheep. The woman went after the lost coin. But the father lets the prodigal go. And I don't know how to figure that out. There's sometimes you go after them. There's sometimes you let God and life and the thorns and the wall and the whale and all of that, you let that turn them back around. But you never stop praying. You never stop waiting. You never quit standing on the porch looking for them to come back down that road so you will run to meet them. While they're a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion. That's the feeling he had. It wasn't judgment. It wasn't condemnation. He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now the next verses talk about the son trying to say, you know, what he had rehearsed in the pig pen. The father kind of says, I've heard enough, you're home. And he embraces him and brings him back. Amen. Forgive them. Run to them. And then just a little insight here. I, I think it's important to believe in them and help them recover their purpose. Jonah will submit to the will of God and he'll preach in Nineveh. I don't ever like his attitude really. You know, the uh, gourd that grows up, 
He's a pretty self-absorbed guy. He's mad because Nineveh repents. Remember that? Now they're going to think I'm a false prophet. I said 40 days and you're going to destroy them. But the reason I didn't go is I knew they'd repent. I knew you'd forgive them and I'd make me look bad. That's kind of Jonah. But anyway. But God restores his purpose. He goes and preaches to Nineveh and an entire city turns to God through his preaching. The apostle Peter will feed the Lord's sheep. He'll write books in the Bible. He'll preach on the day of Pentecost. He will be the apostle to the Gentiles. The prodigal is going to be restored to sonship. Luke 15, 22. The father, you know, this is where we left off, said to his servants, bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring, the signet ring of authority on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf, kill it, let's eat, be merry. What's with the party? You may have heard that before. This, my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to make merry. They celebrated big time. There's another man in the Bible. I've mentioned him in the beginning. His name is John Mark. And he is on a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. We don't know if he gets homesick. We don't know exactly what happened. But he, he, did, he did not go with them to the work. He turned around and went back home. So Paul and Barnabas are going to have a second missionary journey. Barnabas says, let's take my nephew, John Mark. Paul says, no way. That quitter, loser, he's not going with me. And Barnabas and Paul have an argument so strong that they split up. The contention was sharp between them, the Bible says. But Uncle Barnabas believed in John Mark. And later in 2 Timothy 4.11, the apostles Paul says... Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee for he is profitable to me for the ministry. So my point is, believe in people. Help them be restored to a place of ministry. Philemon 1.11, which in time past, Paul said, was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and me. Here's a guy that seemed like a total waste, but now he has value. And we're going to believe in him and we're going to give him a place to make a difference. We're not just going to forgive him, we're going to help him find his place. Now I want to do just a little fine print. There are some types of sin that cause a person to be disqualified from some ministry offices for life. The ministry must be blameless. 2 Timothy, Proverbs 6 talks about types of sin that mark you forever. Jeremiah 18, here's what the Lord said. Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels and a vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. What I want to say here is that God has a plan for your life. And if you mess up that plan, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a place for you. It may not be in some cases, and they're rare, they're, they're, they're very limited, what God initially had in mind, but He will remake you. So the role of the church is to, for, to receive people back, to forgive them, and help them find a place to make a difference in the body of Christ because they have value. In fact... The best testimony of all is the testimony of someone who never backslid, was never out in the world. That's the greatest testimony of all, that you stayed away from sin, that you stayed in the church, and all of that. But those people have a story I don't have. 
I was listening to some people recently talk, and I thought, I, I, I don't know anything about that. I thank God I don't know anything about that, but you have a story that I, I thank God I don't have, but you have a story. You have a testimony. Amen. So. They need to be welcomed home, restoring runaways, recovering these runaway people. Gomer's restored to Hosea's house as his wife. The prodigal is restored to his father's house. I think he lost some things that were not his because the father says to the older brother, you were ever with me and all, I, all that I have is yours. I think what the prodigal lost was lost. But he was back home and he was a son. John Mark is welcomed on this missionary journey and Paul tells Philemon that Onesimus has value. And as a church, we need to celebrate the recovery of every runaway that God brings back home. When I say runaway, that could be a person who's never lived for God or a backslider out of this church or any other church. It needs to be the most important celebration that we have. For Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul said, of whom I am chief. And Jesus said, for the Son of Man is come into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. His mission is our great commission. That is the purpose of the church, to recover every lost person we can. If you're able, would you please stand? Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Right now, I'd like for you to think of a runaway, or maybe two or three or four or more, people that have either never been saved or they're on the run away from God as a backslider. I want you to think about what you can do. You can love them unconditionally even when that love is tough love that does not enable them while they fall, while they free fall to the bottom, right, and come to themselves. We can pray for them and fast for them like Jesus prayed for the Apostle Peter. We can maintain a relationship with them that lets them know that we love them. Remember what the Lord said about Hosea to Gomer, the Lord to Israel. I'm going to speak comfortably to her. Basically, I'm wooing her back. And in the middle of the valley of Achor, this valley of trouble, I'm going to give her this door of hope. Because see, people, they think there's just a wall and there's no way back. But God always has a door. You think you're stuck at the Red Sea, but it's really a path. Right? God has a way of creating that path. So make sure you give them a door of hope in the valley of trouble. And make sure we, you, forgive them. Let them go. Don't ever be jealous, by the way, all of you church kids like me. Don't ever be jealous of all the fun that the backslider had in sin. One of my really, really good friends years ago told me, he said, you are so, I think he said lucky, but blessed. He said, you have no idea the memories that I have and the battles I fight in my mind because of the things I did when I was away from God. He said, you're so lucky, you're so blessed. The older brother is kind of jealous, isn't he? Like, man, 
He got to do all that and then he gets to come home. But don't ever underestimate the loss of the battles. Your job is not to figure out whether they're going to be a billionaire or barely get by. Your job is to welcome them home. And thank God that he was merciful to you because that older brother, I think he was lost in the house, don't you? He was on the farm, but he wasn't in a very good relationship. If you have time, why don't you come to the altar? I want us to pray for runaways tonight. I want us to have the attitude of the father, not of the older brother. I pray that we would have the heart of Hosea to go after an estranged wife. Pray that God would give us the heart of Jesus to pray for and forgive Simon Peter who denied that he knew his Lord. I pray that this would be a house of mercy. Somehow people that feel they're at a dead end or find a door. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray right now. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name right now.